You're listening to a 95 BFM podcast. Welcome back to Ashburton. We're uh, about ready to start now. It's political commentary. We have got Associate Professor Lara Greaves on the line. Kia ora, Lara. How are you this morning? More than I mean, tired. How is it March already? But yeah, how are you? <laughs> I know it feels kind of illegal that we've already sort of mm. moved into autumn when we haven't really had mm. much of a summer in the North Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about when it comes to obviously the cyclone and water and some of these infrastructure things. But I do want to talk about uh, solidarity first and foremost. Mm. We saw a big uh, TEU, Tertiary Education Union, strike here on the Auckland Uni campus. You're actually based down in, in Victoria now, is that right? Yeah, yep. Uh, but what's been happening? Because this is not the first strike we've seen from the Auckland University staff in the last couple of years. What, where are we at, I guess, in this conversation? And what's the um, the main point of it, just to refresh our memories? Yes, so I'm now based down in Victoria. I'm TU member there, but I'm also a little bit still at Auckland. So basically what's happening with university academics is that we just haven't had a decent pay rise to keep up with inflation. For a lot of people who are academics, they have to like move universities to get a pay rise, which is what I did. Mm. <laughs> like I said, that that was my strategy there. Um, <laughs> but people can't do that, right? So say you're a specialist in something quite specific, there yeah. are three places in the country you can work. So normally to get a pay rise, you, you change jobs, but we can't do that as easily. But actually one of the issues at the moment now is, is really staff solidarity with professional staff and with staff on those lower wages. Um, and I know that that was a big issue at Victoria as well. So there's a number of reasons why people are striking. I think that everyone's being really careful to try to minimise the effect on students, but ultimately really trying to frame it as something that students and staff against the university because it's quite confusing to a lot of people why universities are making profits, mm. still profitable, but that staff can't have an increase to even try to keep up with inflation. Do you think that students are in- engaging with this conversation? Uh, it's the, been so exciting to see a real actual return to campus from students for probably the first time in three years. It's the most mm. people I've mm. certainly seen walking yep. around uh, Agree, yep. in the last wee while. But are people uh, engaged with the conversation? Do they even know necessarily what's been going on, especially if they're first-year students? Well, it's really hard for me to tell, but from Twitter I feel as though they are anyway. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, it's a hard one because they won't necessarily understand all of those dynamics, like the, the weird things about the cult that is academia and universities are kind of hard to understand from the outside. I think that I've seen staff putting up things um, like different different slides and information and background to try to kind of educate the students, especially in the social sciences where it's like, yeah. we study we study collective action, so we want to be able to <laughs> educate on collective action. But it, it's hard to know the extent to which they'll understand that. But ultimately, like, it, 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 it's not going to make too much of a difference whether they understand it or not, is that, like, staff are going to keep striking yeah. and staff are really annoyed. I mean, really... One of the things that I've noticed the most between Victoria University and the University of Auckland was just that effect that those extra lockdowns has had on staff morale mm. and staff culture and the amount of goodwill that the University of Auckland is burning through with staff at the moment is just like not a good business decision and not a good decision um, where 
it's, 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 it's an institution full of humans, really. Yeah, totally, totally. And that, that seems to be the core, I mean, one of the core issues that has been uh, part of this conversation for a very long time, certainly since I was a student at least, uh, that that tension between being a business and being an education institution mm. uh, is becoming more and more fraught, perhaps. Definitely. Well, let's talk Cyclone. Uh, solidarity forever. It's total solidarity with the people on strike yesterday. But uh, let's talk about the Cyclone now. And a wee bit about, I'm quite interested to get your thoughts on the way we've perhaps seen a shift in language, uh, even in the last couple of weeks, uh, about climate change in this conversation. Because it feels it feels marked, at least to me. Do you think we are starting to see like a language difference in the way that we think about climate change in the media as being an immediate part of this conversation? Yeah, what I would say there is that it's really important whenever we're trying to tackle a big policy issue, that at those at those initial stages where you're trying to frame up the problem or even suggest that something is a problem, that we're all kind of agreeing on a shared reality to some extent. Obviously, there's differences, and there's differences depending on who someone is and their social position and all those sorts of things. But it's like a case of we kind of, before we're going to tackle a big problem, we need to be able to frame up what the problem is. Yeah. And I think... Yeah, there's, there's this big argument now between the extent to which we should be limiting our emissions as a, as a small country and adaptation and adapting to climate change and investing in infrastructure so we can kind of work around it. And that's our key debate now. And so I think that being able to be arguing about that is a key debate rather than arguing about, oh, does climate change exist? Is it caused by humans? Um, which is only actually believed by a small percentage of the population, like at most 15 20% of people at this point are kind of climate change deniers slash don't think it's caused by humans. Mm -hmm. Um, Depending on the survey, it could be as low as like less than 10% of people. So really the voters voters agree, the politicians tend to agree that at least now that it's a problem. And I say that at least because a lot of countries don't have that level of agreement and are still arguing over like sort of a shared reality. And a shared reality in all sorts of things, um, not just climate change. So, like, that's kind of quite a pleasing space to be in, I think, if you're someone who's concerned with climate change, that at least we're on a shared reality. And I would say that it does... Having watched Parliament TV as one of the five viewers of Parliament TV, um, <laughs> I'd say that that that, that shift in language has definitely happened and that shift in even where um, our, our right-wing parties are looking at talking about adaptation and and kind of have done a bit of a swing and I think it it, it is fairly noticeable over the last couple of years. Yeah absolutely well there's also been a very noticeable shift into talking about infrastructure uh, and we've been having big water conversations for a couple of years Mm. now uh, in the public at, at least I think those conversations are probably much deeper and longer than that in other spaces but it's been a big media focus and Nationals just put out their water policy which has got uh, a few people into hot water what what can you I guess that was a pun that I did not intend to make there but um, <laughs> what what has been I guess a big takeaway for you this week from from what we've seen a from from Nationals policy and also from the Rob Campbell situation uh, you know a public servant speaking out in a in his argument a private capacity and then being removed from that Tefatu order position that he's held. What, what do you make of this whole this whole picture? Yeah, so fundamentally, I think a lot of people who are interested in water infrastructure would never think that the issue would blow up to this extent. And a lot of that has been around co-governance and the co-governance related stuff. Obviously, is important, but a lot of this actually. Like it's strange that they didn't frame it from the outset about cost because their water infrastructure and, and functionality because we need 
functional and affordable water infrastructure. And that is what a lot of these reforms are actually based around, not around Māori having co-management of resources as such. Like, mm. that, that is also an issue here, but it's, it's like the fundamental thing for most people that they're thinking about most days is how, how much are my rates and is there water coming out of a pipe in the middle of the street? Like yeah. Those are the two fundamentals there. And so it was kind of hijacked. The whole conversation was hijacked, and we didn't even actually get to hear the, like, other opposition to free waters, the ones around like like local control and localism and, and local people, which is what nationals now try to tap into with their with their policy. Mm. But the cost thing, a lot of critics are saying that the cost thing is not really addressed in their new policy. So that's like an issue where I guess we'll look at developments and we'll see where um where Labour go now that now that they've paired back some of their policies and they've been talking about tweaks to free waters, it's really a matter of where will they go. It's quite clear that we do need some kind of like multi bipartisan infrastructure spending or some kind of some kind of plan going forward and yeah. I think that, that kind of thing is what we would hope we could get from our politicians, um, given that it's you know, things are so often done in that three year sort of a between elections policy window. So I think that's a, the core thing there. In terms of Rob Campbell, it's, it's that's an interesting one mm. because I think he signed, like, I, when you sign a thing saying that you won't talk about politics or you'll be politically neutral in public, that's one thing. The other thing that I would highlight there is that for a lot of people taking on um, roles where they can't talk publicly or, or um, serve publicly, have kind of said that. Can't, can't talk about politics publicly have said that um, they tend to, a lot of people will put the organisation before themselves um, rather than, and they put the co-papa before themselves and their ability to have that free speech, mm. so to speak. But the other thing that I've highlighted in all of it is that um, as a Pākehā man, there's certain things that he can say and be perceived as neutral, that Māori woman, yep. Pacific woman, Pacifica, Māori, people from ethnic communities can't, queer communities can't say without instantly being viewed as political. So, yeah, the fact that it's blown up for him <laughs> is just something that happens all the time for, like, yeah, younger people, anyone who's instantly viewed as, as, as left-wing just by virtue of their identities. So while I kind of did... Um, Kind of, it, it's a complicated situation for him and, and for free speech, and I'm sure that's something that um, we'll talk about more in the future as a society, the extent to which a public servant or person in a public-facing role can actually ever really be neutral. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning, Lara. Uh, I hope the weather's nice and welly, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Kia ora. Kia ora. You just heard a bit of political commentary. That was a 95BFM podcast. Support 95BFM with a B-card. Go to 95BFM.com slash sign up.